0: Hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford & Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners, in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And we always like to dive into the legacy of, of the uh, both the Dodgers and the Giants, the National League New York legacy. And so without further ado, let me welcome on, somebody I like to call the Mets fan incarnate himself, and that is faith and fear in Flushing's Greg Prince. Greg, always a pleasure. It's been a couple years now since we've done a legacy podcast.
1: And we're still here, Sam, uh, both us and the Mets. (laughs) Exactly.
0: And, you know, they've had a rough time of it uh, uh, lately. And, and of course, you know, sometimes when they're playing this way, I do think back to the Daffiness Boys. You know, I think, I think of that term and, and uh, the echoes of the Dodgers and the Giants. And I know that you have personally adopted uh, as your grandfather team the uh, New York Baseball Giants. And, um, you know, when, when the Mets are, are going through a stretch like that, do you ever think back to just that overall legacy of, of wait till next year in many ways?
1: Well, ho- hopefully it's too soon for next year. Uh, this year just got here, so it seems. Although we are after this weekend, one quarter of the way through this year, but it's you know the the, the Giants and the Dodgers provide a good reminder that you know it's a, it's a long road in any given year in any given era. Uh, you know, I can think of. I can think of uh, one giant team in particular uh, that that was pretty well buried uh, behind the Dodgers uh, this time of year, and even uh, far later. And uh, that that certainly uh, you know, di- didn't you know r- write the entire outcome by May. So uh, you know team, teams have uh, have stretches. Uh, you know the, these Mets got off to a, a nine and four start. Things look pretty promising. And since then they have lost eighteen of twenty four. Uh, I think I think today was the first day where I woke up really in sort of a quachety mood about them, uh for lack of a better word. So that's pretty good that you can get thirty seven games into a season and not be disgusted with your team. Uh, you know, up up until <laughs> until now. I sort of looked at it, you know. I, I took like the nine and four start as sort of, you know, the the direction in which they were going, and you know, all, most of the losses since then have been well, you know, that's just the way it goes. It's still early. You know, sometimes you're going to get out pitched, sometimes you're going to get out hit, and finally, after a one and five road trip through uh, Milwaukee and San Diego, I'm like, all right, enough of Enough of the default optimism, Uh, some things here got to change, but, uh, you know, it's a long season, it was a long season, you know, in in Brooklyn and in upper Manhattan for many years, so, uh, you know, to to, to quote probably every manager, uh, (laughs) take them one at a time. Take them
0: one at a time. Uh, that's all you can do. Sometimes you got to take it one base at a time. Sometimes you got to take it one strike at a time, one, one pitch at a time. And um, I don't know whether the numbers were as sharp for the Dodgers and the Giants at any point in their history as to what we're about to refer to. Uh, but something that is remarkable, and I was, I was reading about it uh, yesterday um, from one of your, your posts from back in 2012, when things were starting to fall apart for that team. And you, you, re, it, it, you, you were basically reminded in the 2012 season of the 1962 team and how they, they had this knack for being just on the brink of, of uh, getting that tying run in or getting that winning run in but not being able to. And the numbers for a 120 lost team, uh, 56 times, did they get the tying run or or winning run uh, close but no cigar? And, and that's
1: a remarkable
0: number for the worst team in modern era to have.
1: Yeah, you you know, but that that speaks to something about that team. Uh, you know, they they were never quite out of it you know not not every game was a 17 to 4 loss which by the way was an actual score between the Giants and Mets uh at least one game or or even the Dodgers or Mets or Giants and Mets uh in 1962 there were some blowouts for to be sure you don't know, get to lose 120 games uh with, with every game being close but you know when you're a fan you know and you have that many losses you know, I, I guess you can sit back and and try to discern, you know, what is more, for lack of a better word, painful, uh, you know, to to constantly be, uh, you know, having those 17 to four, ten to nothing types of games, or, oh my God, we only lost three to two, or two to one, or four to three, and oh, we had the winning run on third base and if only, and, you know, fill in the blank, if only, if only Throneberry hadn't struck out uh, or, or you know, if only Todd Frazier hadn't struck out or, you know, in, insert your choice of, of Giant or Dodger of your trip uh, for, for frustration. I, I think it's, uh, I think you wind up with a rich tapestry of losses in the course of a season. Uh, you know what, though? Thinking back, uh, you know, to, to the greatest season I ever lived through, which was 1986, greatest season any Mets fan ever lived through in terms of record, they lost 54 games. I remember they were horribly frustrating. We left the winning run on third base type of games then. So you're, you're never fully satisfied if you're a fan. You know, you, you, you can be reasonable and you can be logical and you can say, oh, well, it just wasn't our day so many times. Once in a while, you're just going to throw your hands up and throw the remote at the television or do whatever it is you do to express your dismay. But then you're back the next day, and on on a day like this when your team isn't playing, uh, despite the previous six games not not being that much fun, despite the fact that you didn't get nearly enough sleep because the Mets were in San Diego, (laughs) you know, just just despite losing an 18-inning game in Milwaukee the other night, all, all of that stuff, you're disappointed that there isn't another game. So, uh, you know, as uh, within the context of, of what we're talking about here, the, the the Mets being the National League legacy keepers, uh, for, for that which was established in New York all those years ago, uh, you won a game the next day. Uh, you know, the rough part was, uh, you know, the years where there was no game the next day uh, from 58 to 61. So, uh, you know, a day like this will uh, – like our figurative wounds. Uh, try, try to use uh, the, the time we have wisely, and uh, you know, be back at them tomorrow night at seven ten. Yeah, and, and and sometimes it seems that as much as
0: you want the the game today, um, that you it kind of gives not only the team a breather but the fans a breather too. Especially as we we raise hell on Twitter in this this uh, uh, such hyper sensitive time that we're currently living in, and you know i I, uh, I I think that you know everybody likes to say like, oh well, now you gotta lick your wounds and beat up on the Marlins, but it never seems like it's all that easy with a, a team like the Marlins, no matter how much worse they are you know i I, I think that people. You know, before the season, uh, my friend who's a Phillies fan was like, "Just be happy you played them 19 times." I'm like, "It's never that easy with this team. <laughs> you can't just say that." But going to what you were talking about with 1951 and the the Giants, you know, they were they they were able they were like 13, 14 games behind uh, in August. But back in the day, you had you played these these uh, same teams so often. Um, I mean, you have, you have examples of the 2015, 2016 Mets, and I always like to think of the 2005 Astros when I think that people are, are talking about how buried the Mets are at, at this point, or, or could be at this point. I think about the fact that the 2005 Astros were 15 and 30 and made the World Series. Do you think that compared to 1951 with that schedule uh, and how it is now, do you think it's harder? to be able to go on stretches like that because you're not facing these same teams so often?
1: I think the, the one thing we have to keep in mind about an accomplishment like the 2005 Astros or to a lesser extent, the 2016 Mets who were 60 and 62 in August is a wild card. In fact, there's two wild cards now, one in 05. And uh, what the – The 51 Giants faced what the 69 Mets faced, uh, you know, were daunting distances and, you know, one shot, uh, you know, you you had to catch the team that was in first place, or you just had to forget about it. Uh, It it helped to have 22 games a year uh, versus the team, you know, that you were chasing. But, you know, what they – they had fifty, excuse me, they had twenty-two games against you, and you know you needed help along the way, and you know to the point that the Mets are playing the lousy Miami Marlins this weekend. You sort of have to count on the Marlins of the world in a given season to to rise up and beat the the other team along the way. Uh, you know certainly. Both in the case of the fifty-one Dodgers and the sixty-nine Cubs, you know those teams had to lose some games when they weren't playing. You know the the team that eventually caught them. You know a lot has to to go to go right. Uh, you know it's you know a, a little funny to think about it. We're four and a half games out with a hundred and what is it one hundred twenty-five to play? I think so. You know we're, we're not there yet, but uh, yeah, it's you know. There is sort of a last refuge of a scoundrel uh, quality to saying, oh, you know, thank goodness we get to play the Marlins now and we get the Nationals when the, when they're not uh, at full strength and we get the Tigers because, you know, as far as we know, they're not any good. But, uh, you know, I think any, you know, any anybody who's ever watched a baseball season unfold, every team is dangerous. Uh, you know, I don't even have to go back to 51 – don't even have to go back to 1964, but I will. Uh, you know, the the, the year that the, the Phillies and Reds and Cardinals were coming down to the wire, and the, the Phillies were in the process of, of blowing a six-and-a-half game lead with 10 to go, and the Cardinals were appeared to be in the driver's seat, and they were, they were playing the 100-plus loss Mets. Mets beat them on a Friday night, a Saturday, and, and nearly helped – facilitate a three-way tie on the last day of the season you know these are these were the Mets who were on their way to uh a 53 and 109 record which was their best ever to that point <laughs> you know three years in so uh <laughs> you know yeah I, I suppose you, you would want you would want to take dead aim you would want you would want you know I, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of a really good example and I guess uh in nineteen eighty to invoke the, the, the Dodgers here. Uh they were three games behind the Astros with three to play. And they had three with the Astros that weekend at Dodgers Stadium and they won all three. And hey look at that, we're tied. Then they had a one game playoff which the Astros won and that, that was that for the Dodgers. So uh you know as as the season gets late, sure you want those head to head matchups because you, you, you want the illusion of control uh, their quote: Their destiny is in their own hands. Which, where the Mets were concerned, and may, maybe some years with both the Dodgers and Giants, kind of makes you nervous, because you know, I don't know that I, I would, would trust certain Mets teams with with their there, and therefore, but uh, by by uh, quality of transference, my destiny in their hands. But uh, yeah, you, you know, you you want those uh, those games out to, to you. You know what I remember? You mentioned the 2005 Astros. Uh, yeah, they were 15 and 30, which was that that record stands out to me. That, that was the Mets' record of the year they fired Joe Frazier and hired Joe Torrey. Uh, and they were hopeless. And, you know, Torrey was, Torrey's team won seven out of eight and then, you know, went back to being the, the Mets of that era, which lasted far too long. But uh, I remember an, a Houston newspaper columnist wrote, like, that's it, they're dead. It's over, forget it, folks. They, you know, wait till next year or whatever he wrote. And, you know, they came along. Again, the wild the wild card helped the fact that there were there was no uh it wasn't like there was one team out ahead of everybody else and you know, they eventually won however many games probably I think probably like eighty nine, something like that, to win the wild card and then, you know, good luck in the playoffs took over. So uh Yeah, it would be it would be great if we, we were here, you know, harking back to uh, you know, gr- great starts. Uh, by uh, New York National League teams because we were inspired by a great start by this New York National League team unfortunately we're not, we're not there at the moment
0: it's such a type of mine when people are uh, uh, posting the standings at 7 and 3 and 9 and 4 and and you know this is this is something that like people seem to have have uh, you know short-term memory loss the the, the 2017 team was seven and three and in first place. Obviously, we know that the 2018 team was eleven and one at some point. Um, and it's just it's weird how these uh, games that you think to yourself, oh well, it's just one game. Whether it's the uh, uh, that the game where they could have gone twelve and one, but the Nationals came from behind in the seventh or eighth inning, whichever it was last year in 2018. Uh, I, I I was mentioning how you ha- have to put your uh, uh, your foot on the neck of the Phillies uh, after throwing behind Reese Hoskins this year but the Mets uh, came out listless and, as an offense and and the Phillies took over in the next game and I I was getting into it about a fan who was just like it's just one game you can't you can't give Callaway the blame here and it's like but but these you see that these things have, have ramifications and and, and uh, something gets thrown off if you're not able to continue to make a statement. And the same thing just happened the other day when Pete Alonso followed up and, and, and I think that he's just been a fantastic rookie. And every time, like, the league seems to be catching up to him right now, he seems to be catching back. Um, and also, you know, especially without David Wright right now, I think he's taking a, a really – Almost veteran-type leadership role for this team, but but it's those follow-ups where you have to continuously, you know, in this in this sport, it's it's so such a quick turnaround uh, that you have to, you know, they say it's your your momentum's only as good as your next day starting pitcher. And we didn't necessarily – we had somebody making his, his Major League debut – I'm sorry, not Major League debut, but his Mets Major League debut uh, yesterday. But he was, I think, the, the last issue with why the team was not able to get over over the hump uh, yesterday. And, you know, it, it's it's just moments like this. And I'm wondering, you know, obviously, like I just mentioned the 2017 team. So Mickey Callaway cannot – necessarily be the reason why, you know, his track record in two years in a row is losing a little bit of steam, but what do you think he needs to do uh, in his sophomore year to prevent what happened last year, which it was June completely making us think that this team was going to be another one of those Mets 100-loss teams?
1: Uh, that's a good question. Uh, it may be an unanswerable question in this day and age, because I don't know that the way teams are set up, meaning, you know, front offices, analytics departments, you know, all having their say uh, over the day-to-day machinations of a baseball team that a, the manager is necessarily solely responsible for, you know, getting a team, I don't know if you want to say motivated, prepared uh, you know, ho- hopefully that that stuff is part of it. You know, is he making the lineup? Is is he having the lineup sent down to him, which which seems to actually kind of be how things work today? Uh, is it a matter of just kind of you know keeping guys fresh, making sure everybody is on the same page, all the, all that communication stuff that. You know, for six and a half years, we heard Terry Collins was a master rat. That's why he was, like, such an improvement over Jerry Manuel. And then after half a season of, of wallowing in 2017, we hear, heard that Terry Collins was a terrible communicator. He never told anybody whether they were playing or not. Um, I don't really get the sense from Mickey Calloway that he is a reason for their pleading success or for their recurring failure, which I guess, you know, sp- speaks to a a certain ineffectuality, and again, this is from afar. I don't know what's going on in that clubhouse. I can only gauge, you know, what what I read and hear from from those who are closer to the situation. But it does feel like a, a season that might be slipping away. And again, all, all all it takes is a, you know, hey, we had a great we had a great weekend against the Marlins. Bring on the Nationals. Maybe, uh, you know, the, the Phillies had a bad weekend. we picked up ground. It's Maybe it's too soon to worry about those things, but um, you know, ultimately, though, to to what I was saying about front offices, you know, did they provide him, do they provide him and his coaches with the material uh, for, for, from which to avoid a season like last year? And that I'm not so sure about. Right, right now, the Mets seem to have constructed a roster immune to success. I get the feeling it's it's. The fact that they sent down <laughs> Dominic Smith about a week ago uh, really speaks badly to how the Mets operate, I think, that you have your your best left-handed bat off the bench. And when you had to make a move to get get somebody back after an injury, you said, well, we don't know what what else to do. Uh, we, God, we wouldn't want to lose somebody like Keon Broxson. There's a 150 batting average because somebody might pluck him on waivers because we don't have options on him well, let's just send down the guy who helps us win games. Uh, not not to say that, that Dom Smith would have gotten, you know, five big hits on this road trip and made everything better, but you it, it just seems short-sighted, and it just seems to be how the Mets have operated all year trying to figure out how to, you know, hold on to a bunch of pieces to a puzzle that's not coming together as it is. Uh, you know, when you look at guys like Todd Frazier and, you know... You have Jed Lowry coming back. We don't know what Jed Lowry is going to be, but obviously he's going to get his opportunities. What, is, what does that mean for a youngster like J.D. Davis? Uh, you're, you're still kind of plugging in Jeff McNeil wherever you can because you, you took away his most natural position at second by bringing in 36-year-old Robinson Cano. You're kind of squeezing him off a of third base. You're insisting he's a left fielder. He's not really a left fielder. And, again, if things work out well, uh, great. He's in left field. He's hitting 350. But you know, balls fall in, or you know, he doesn't quite know how to you know leap at the wall and catch one, which you know doesn't happen that often. But it happened in San Diego yesterday, so I, I it just gets the feeling that the entire thing is set up to not succeed at, at every turn, and lo and behold, the Mets are three games below 500. Uh, I, I don't really get the sense that Callaway is 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 a driving force to to bring them out of it, but I'm not I'm not sure it's him and him alone. That's the reason that, uh, you know, the, this team is not, uh, doesn't feel better positioned.
0: Yeah, you know, and, and as they say, we'll have to see uh, one way or the other. Uh, say, surah, surah, <laughs> whatever will be, will be. Um, I'm going to switch gears now, uh, going back to to somebody who is uh, near and dear to many New York baseball fans' hearts, and that's Casey Spangle. Uh, when we were talking about the 1962 team, the 1964 team, even uh, I, I believe still so, had Casey Stengel at the managerial. Home, oh yeah. If I remember correctly, uh, 2000. Uh, uh, sorry, 1965 was the last year. But I I looked at his playing years, and what's remarkable about it, and I, he was obviously not a Hall of Fame caliber player. Uh, but what stands out to me was that. Um, in his age 31 and 32 seasons, mind you, at that point, based off of the plate appearances, he was relegated to bench duty. But Casey Stengel for the New York Giants hit three sixty eight in 1922 and three thirty nine in 1923. Um, and overall, over a 14-year career, he hit .284. Um, and, and he was a darling coming up. For the Brooklyn team, they, they he was a big fan favorite. And, and, you know, Casey Stengel was Casey Stengel throughout, uh, had that bubbling personality and, and Stengelese, as they like to say, going all the way back to his Brooklyn days. So he was very much uh, thought, uh, thought of uh, in, in very endearing terms. But I wonder, coming back to 1921, 1922, especially following a World Series appearance for the Dodgers, how much that must have been a thorn in the Dodgers' fans' side—the fact that he was hitting so well for the uh, the biggest rival they had, the the New York Baseball Giants.
1: It's always tough to see your former player succeeding for your ongoing rival. Of course, it wasn't a direct route route direct route. Excuse me, uh, from from the Dodgers to the Giants. Uh, you know, Casey went to Pittsburgh then from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia before, uh, you know, John McGraw, uh, you know, got a, uh, got, got his man. Uh, and then he contributed to some, some great giant teams, but, uh, you know, years later, uh, the Dodgers fans had, had to watch Leo DeRocher, <laughs> their Leo DeRocher, uh, lead the Giants to glory. Uh, you know, we've, we've, we've seen it, uh, you know, we in modern the modern era, uh, we saw Daniel Murphy go from a beloved Met to reviled National uh, f- for the 20 minutes where we fancy the Washington Nationals are blood rivals. So, um, you know, this this sort of thing happens. I mean, C- Casey Stengel. It's funny to think about Casey Stengel in his playing career that he was basically Casey, as you said, he was Casey Stengel. He was a personality. And you know a, a bizarre character of the game in the 19 teens, <laughs> you know, f- 50 years before you know Mets fans got to embrace him as their own and as the guy who was kind of defining their character. He was you know defining the, the Brooklyn Robins character, uh, and would would stop off to be a you know a a memorable part of the Giants. Still that guy, Casey Stengel. Uh, still that character who who would go to Boston and manage in the 30s and not, not manage all that well, or at least the team didn't do that well, bringing to mind Warren Spahn, who was a Boston Brave and many years later a New York Met who said uh, – you know I played for Casey Stengel before and after he was a genius <laughs> because when Casey Stengel was a genius <laughs> he was re- he was wearing the Yankee uniform and uh, gee it kind of it kind of helped m- much as Mickey Calloway might m- might admit if you got him alone it helps to have really good players if you want to be a really good manager and uh, Casey Stengel had a lot of good players between 1949 and 1960 in the Bronx so um you know uh if if you can't be good maybe Maybe the lesson here is at least be entertaining. And nobody ever accused Casey Stengel of not being that. That is for
0: sure. And what's what's remarkable even more of dissecting these numbers is that, you know, during his Brooklyn years, he was uh, clearly playing 124 games, uh, averaging about that. In 1917, he played 150 games of 622 plate appearances, only batting 257 that year. Um, he did have 73 RBIs that year, but what's so crazy about his 1922 and 1923 New York Giants seasons was that he not only batted 368 and 339 respectively with some great on-base percentages as well, uh, but he hits 48 RBIs and 43 RBIs uh, in only – 250 at bat and 218 at bats, respectively, for those World Series winning. Te- uh, sorry, one of them is a World Series winning team. And obviously, we know what happened in 1923 when the Yankees finally got their own home. Um, but th- those are some remarkable uh, uh, RBI numbers. And I'm sure if I go even further, you'll see that he he was must have been coming up in in a lot of big spots
1: and coming through in those spots and was probably trusted by McGraw to come through in those big spots and, you know, rewarded his manager's trust. I mean, you you talk about the 1923 World Series, uh, the first one the Yankees won, uh, defined up to a point by Casey Stengel, uh, and his inside-the-park home run exploits. He had two home runs in that World Series in a lifetime World Series, and of course that was the only postseason there was. Uh, a three ninety-three hitter, uh, 19, 16, 22, and twenty three. The first one for the Dodgers. Uh, you know, this is the kind of player who, you know, years later, I, I wonder, you know, what what analytics would have said about about that kind of player years later because he, he sounds. And I again, I'm sure the number, I'm sure the numbers are there to be analyzed. But uh, you know, this is the kind of player that that fans throughout baseball history have cottoned to, and they always want to see that kind of guy up. Look at those RBI numbers. Look, look, look at the uh, you know look at the way he ran the bases. And you know, there was probably somebody willing to take out an abacus because there were no calculators then. <laughs> and say, no, he's not really that good. <laughs> uh you know he's it's, it's overblown you're uh, you know you're putting reputation ahead of production um but uh, you know the, this is uh you know in in a way we are <laughs> we are fortunate that everything sort of has to be figured out retroactively uh because it's nice to have those legends and i think that that's you know where you know the the interest of of people like you and me in these teams that we never saw comes from the fact that, that people, you know, kept the legend alive and kept telling the stories and the the numbers are important, but they're also sort of incidental. You know, you know what, really uh, to, to, to fast forward back to the present day, kind of, kind of gets me down as much as I love say Pete Alonso hitting really long home runs. I am after, I guess now it's it's been in the baseball vocabulary for about four years now. The phrase "exit velocity," which is fine if that's something that analytics departments want to have and in their arsenal of figuring out why they want to keep this player or that, that's great. I don't, I don't mind hearing about it. But the second that a home run is hit, and I start seeing a barrage of tweets telling me that you know Pete Alonso hit a home run that, that left you know that, that left Petco Park at 117.2 miles per hour whatever it was, like that doesn't mean. A, dancing to me (laughs) (laughs) because you could say it left at 106 miles an hour and that would still sound really good you could also tell me that uh you know the todd frazier popped out on a ball that went you know i don't know how how you know 98 miles an hour whatever just means nothing to me (laughs) you know if you want to tell me it hit off the western metal building sign in in left field of petco park and bounced back into the you know the center field pavilion that tells me all i need to know uh, telling me that that so and so you know ran the bases this this many you know feet per second, it just it leaves me cold. It, it, honestly, it, it gives me a sinus headache. Uh, and again, I, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> trying to I'm, I'm not trying to provoke a rear guard action here against progress. I'm all for it. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm all for using all of this stuff to get an edge to help help your team win a game. I, I I look at, it, at the shift as kind of a – I don't want to see necessary evil, but I see balls that go into gloves that I think are heading to the outfield. I understand it. I understand why, why you want to do certain things to win. It's just you lose something if you just kind of throw numbers out there without any real context to them. Now, now perhaps after another several years of hearing, 118.3 mile per hour exit velocity – it will be second nature the same way saying, hey, he drove in, you know, Don clendenna drove in 97 runs in 1970, and I'll understand immediately, hey, that's pretty good. But right now, it, it just feels like numbers for numbers' sake. I, I think to a certain degree when we were going through kind of the, the push and pull of sabermetrics versus what? Why are they bothering me with OPS? <laughs> so, you know, circa 2005. I, I think part of it was just the the, the people who were early adopters just want to keep throwing the numbers of these things out there. You know, look at his fit, without really stopping to explain what that meant. And I I have found as somebody who you know came came to baseball with the 1969 Mets when none of these numbers existed that when when somebody calmly explains to me why I should care about fielding independent pitching, to use that as an example, and I kind of take a beat and say, oh, I get it. I I remember Sean Markham of the 2013 Mets, who was something like one in nine, (laughs) had a remarkably good fielding independent pitching average or percentage, whatever you would call it. And it helped me understand that, okay, he's just kind of pitching in some bad luck here. They're not making the plays behind him. I should be happy to a certain degree, or at least I shouldn't cringe when Sean Markham comes into a game. And really that that kind of got me on his side for a few months until he was released and, and he started criticizing Gary Cohn, Keith Renez and Ron Darling for perhaps criticizing him some night. And I said, well, you know, if, if you don't, if you don't think those guys know their baseball, then, you know, Get lost, which, uh, basically the way I saw it. But um, <laughs> this this stuff all, all has its place, and I, I guess the the reason I've I've gone off on a tangent from Casey Stengel in in 1922 to uh, to Sean Markham in 2013 with a stop at uh, balls leaving 118.3 miles per hour, is because I I think you know in in the long run you know we're we're going to tell the stories of of guys who who did you know who who lifted their hats and pigeons flew out <laughs> so, uh you know as 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 we tell those kinds of Casey stengel stories through the years or the or the black cat that runs on the field we not, nobody measured how fast the black cat ran in front of the cubs dugout in september ninth nineteen sixty nine we 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 just enjoy the imagery, and you know if, if uh if uh, you know Cool Papa Bell was so fast, he was he was in bed before uh, before the he was under the covers before the lights went out, as the story goes. That tells me <laughs> a lot more than I need to know about the exit velocity or or, or you know the, the the feet per second or whatever it is that that his his home to first time would have covered. So uh, you know you know of course you know keep keep track of everything. Let's let's just be careful to to tell it well. And uh, not not just uh, bombard us with with numbers that don't yet have any meaning other than wow. wants to hit a ball that left at 118 miles. He, he leads. I, I, that was a statistic I saw yesterday. I think on SNY, like uh, more more home runs hit 112 miles per hour or faster. He leads all of baseball, and I'm like, what the hell does that mean? You know, that uh, balls that, yeah. that left the, the ballpark at 107 miles per hour are somehow less important. It's like, no, you you found these statistics and you want to make it sound good. And somebody, quite frankly, is, is sponsoring, uh, you know, this stuff because every one of these numbers always comes with a caveat that, you know, Amazon – see, I'm glad I can't remember mm-hmm. what the hell it was called. Amazon something. StatCast. Web services, um, I think, yeah. Web services. Thank you. See they 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 they've infiltrated you, they'll infiltrate me eventually. Uh, you know, great, great. But uh, you know, I'd 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 rather I'd rather hear about uh, you know, Dave, the the time Dave Kingman's ball crashed through a window on Waveland Avenue uh, as it left Wrigley Field
0: uh, is more
1: more telling to me than the fact that however fast it, uh, it got on its horse, shall we say, and it caused property damage. And uh, you know all, all I can say at, at the end of this is, may they find more numbers and more more imagery and more explanations for all the home runs Pete Alonzo will hit because uh, right now he and he and Jeff McNeil, the most most exciting part of, of Mets baseball uh, in 2019 which I wasn't expecting but that that's the beauty of baseball that the things you don't expect whether it's a team coming back from 13 and a half games behind or a rookie who uh is still a rookie because uh, nobody saw fit to put him on the roster last year when maybe uh, he could have given us a sneak preview
0: exactly and if you are listening now you're listening to the archive and we appreciate that we have about uh, 5 minutes left and and but to just to touch on what you were saying um There's probably a lot of balls that were very important that were hit by Casey Stengel and to present day players like Jeff McNeil that only were hit with about 85 miles per hour exit velocity. Uh, But Jeff McNeil or Casey Stengel was able to beat it out like he did the other day. Going to what you were saying about those numbers, I remember I think it was either yesterday or the day before when either I saw it on television or I, I saw it most likely in a tweet as a screen grab was all those numbers regarding Pete Alonzo and some of these new analytical uh, uh, power numbers. And, and I, I went down the SMY list on the, the, the page wondering when there was going to be something that I cared about <laughs> in terms of Pete Alonzo's, Numbers and not nothing there. I, I I can't tell you. The only thing I can tell you was exit velocity, and I don't remember the number. And I just remember that the other things had something to do with exit velocity, but I could not factor that in. Exit velocity when I'm, you know, uh, doing research for this project, and and the story that I'm te- I'm I'm trying to tell. It's not going to be – there's nothing in exit velocity that's going to tell me how important Dolph Camilli was for the Brooklyn Dodgers of the late 30s and early 40s, how important Pete Reiser was before he kept crashing into walls and getting concussions from being beat. It's not like I, – I, I, I. we don't know how fast the ball was thrown by people who hit Pete Reiser in the head. All we know is that he suffered considerably – because of the damage from either getting hit in the head or the way he would throw himself into cement walls or the way he got run out there just to play baseball in the Army. Those are the things that tell the story that we're trying to to tell. And as of now, all we do know is that P. Alonso can hit balls rather far. But just like he said the other day, Mr. Alonzo said, and going back to the leadership uh, element that he is, is starting to gain traction with. The only thing that matters at the end is not that rookie of the month. It's not exit velocity. It's going to be that World Series. And that's the those are the only things that matter when it comes to telling the story.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, you invoked David Wright's name earlier. And I, I was struck the other day thinking uh, it's interesting to me that, you know, I, I did a, you know, through for, for baseball reference, I added up all the players who David Wright played with from 2004 through last year. Uh, you know, including you know when he was on the the disabled list forever, and you know because he still was the captain, he was still an active player, still you know crossed paths with those guys. And it was something like a third of every Mets since 1962 played with David Wright because he was there so long. And now Pete Alonso kind of appears. Huh. You know, literally, like, the next day, you know, in baseball terms, they never put. They, they actually, I think, crossed paths in, in Las Vegas last year. They were both on the roster there briefly. But uh, it, it does feel like, you know, there is a successor. I, I personally was always kind of looking for a successor to David Wright in a way because David Wright's, you know, very admirable steadiness all those years when the Mets were not, you know, achieving our dreams for them. I always found it a little maddening. <laughs> he was such a professional, and I kind of just wanted him to be kind of raise his voice. I, I always thought Ike Davis would be that guy, and, you know, that that didn't work out. Uh, in a way, I thought mm-hmm. Ahmed Rosario might be, you know, the vanguard of a kind of a new wave, and that hasn't happened yet. And here comes Pete Alonso, who wasn't really that, that highly touted until last year, and he seems to be that guy. We don't know. Uh, there, there's a ways, a ways to go in his career. We hope there's a career to go in, in that career. But, you know, he, he does seem to be, you know, a veteran in rookie's clothing. Uh, tremendous upside. Yeah, you know, I, I have been guilty of, oh, my God, he just, you know, he, he reached for that pitch. The league has figured him out. Well, you know, that was a flash of the pan. It's over. And then he hits the ball very far, however you want to measure it. So, uh, you know, he, he seems to have – he seems to be the – Whatever happens this season, and we don't know, could be a, could be a middling season, could be could still be a great season, could be a terrible season. Uh, you know, this is, is fun to to keep track of, to you know to kind of jump on this guy's back, shall we say, and uh, you know see where he leads us. Uh, you know, because you know even in the in the so-so seasons, you you need somebody like this to hang on to, and much much like what David Wright was to us in 2004. Uh, or what Willie Mays was to Giants fans in 1951 to, to really, you know, to really reach for something, or, or what al Strawberry was in 1983. Maybe Pete Alonso is that to us in 2019, that, you know, we don't know what the year will be, but, you know, we're going to watch this kid, uh, you know, convince us or, 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 you know, die trying, shall we say, uh, that, that we're going somewhere, and this, this is the kid who's taking us there. It's, it's very exciting. And you know, I, I it noticed is. the other night yeah. when when, it, when he when he hit that home run with however however much the exit velocity was, it was his 11th home run. Edwin Diaz ca- came in, had some trouble, but got his ninth save. And I was thinking, you know, Pete Alonso has more saves than Edwin Diaz. And you know, you have to add caveats. <laughs> you can't have a save. You can't have a save without a win. So Edwin Diaz only had so many chances, but Edwin Diaz has done a, a pretty good job. Uh, he hasn't doesn't have 57 saves yet. That would be impossible. But you know, we're, and we're always convinced that the the new closer is going to become a met and just kind of you know evaporate. But that hasn't happened yet. So he's doing his job. And here's a guy who a year ago at this time was just sort of a, in terms of Alonzo, was just a guy. I think it was a double A, and there was only like a, some stirring of why don't they compete Alonso here? And he has more more home runs than your closer, who is considered you know a top notch closer for a team that that was has been pretty good up until now, uh, until really this, this road trip where we were, they had a winning record, um, he has more home runs and that guy has saves. And it struck me. And, again, if, if you were hey, to Greg, say to me
0: that – go. Greg, I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah, sorry to cut you off, but it looks like we're about to get cut off. And so I just okay. wanted to thank you before the, the air uh, uh, left the tires, if you will. And uh, it, it's always a pleasure to talk baseball with you, you, you know, and, and as we know from many podcasts, we
1: can keep going and going. Thank you for allowing me my tangents. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh.